My guest today is Nikki Toyama Zito, Executive Director of Christians for Social Action, formerly known as Evangelicals for Social Action, and we will be talking about that. Before taking up her post at CSA in 2017, Nikki served in leadership positions at International Justice Mission, Urbana Conference, and InterVarsity Christian Fellowship. She loves working with communities around the world, whether through scripture, thoughtful reflection on leadership, or stirring the spiritual imagination. Nikki writes on justice, leadership, gender issues, and multi-ethnicity for various magazines, and she serves as a leading voice for the Missio Alliance. Her work was profiled on NPR's On Point, Outreach Magazine's leadership issue cover in September of 2017, Religion and Politics, apropos to the Bonhoeffer universe uh, in 2018, and Christianity Today's Who's Next, as well as Rejuvenate Magazine's 40 Under 40. But I won't be asking her today whether she still qualifies for that status. She is co-editor of the book More Than Serving Tea, published by InterVarsity. She wrote, uh, or co-wrote rather, Partnering with the Global Church, also with IVP. Uh, co-edited the Urbana Onward series, uh, as well as co-authored The God of Justice, IGM Institute's Global Church Curriculum, came out with uh, InterVarsity Press in 2015. I have to mention Nikki has a mechanical engineering degree, as does my sister, Colleen. So all in the family kind of stuff here, uh, from Stanford University, no less and completed her master's in organizational leadership at Eastern University, an institution familiar to a lot of us. She's a neighbor of mine in the D.C. metro area. And Nikki, it's a pleasure to have you in conversation today. Thanks for joining me. Rob, thanks so much for having me. Well, here we go. Um, you have a very interesting bio but I'm sure it gets even more interesting <laughs> than what we find on the website uh, for Christians for Social Action. Um, you know, I always like to start with a kind of familiarization tour of uh -huh. my interlocutor. Can you tell us a little more about your own story of family, faith, career? Uh, what, what, what's, what's the winding road? Sure. Well, I can give you a, a bit of a hop, skip, and a jump through some of that. Um, I was born in uh, Chicago, Illinois, so I'm a Midwesterner uh, at heart, um, and was uh, grew up in a Japanese-American church that came out of the internment camps from World War II. So this wow. kind of faith and justice thing was uh, unknown to me at that time. You know, it was a, a part, you know, uh, intertwined together. Um, it snowed in April when I had to make a decision about college, so I went west uh, to Stanford um, and studied engineering. Um, and I would say on campus is where um, the faith that I was given as a child became my own. And I, I, I encountered a group of folks who like really took Jesus's word seriously, and that was pretty surprising to me. Um, so I worked in Silicon Valley for a couple of years, and um, in the 
biomedical um, field. Mm. And, um, and then I had sort of a moment uh, where uh, this, uh, my president of uh, my device firm sort of said to me, hey, Nikki, see, see that Christie's catalog over there? I'm going to buy that $10,000 watch on Friday. And I mm. thought, wow, I am working how many hours so this man can buy these watches? And I thought, you know what? I, I think I want to do something different with my time and my heart and my stress <laughs> energy. So mm. that actually was my pivot into Christian ministry um, mm. and uh, went to work for Andy that's like a That's like a St. Francis. <laughs> um, mm. um, yes, yeah, so I worked at UC Berkeley uh, with college students there with InterVarsity, um, University of San Francisco. Um, worked uh, for the Urbana Conference um, in Madison, Wisconsin, and, and in that role also uh, gave some leadership to the Lausanne uh, Congress uh, in uh, South Africa, and then um, came out to the East Coast uh, to work with IJM's uh, Institute for Biblical Justice, and that was where I've, I felt like I really got to match kind of the theological reflection with on-the-ground action. Um, and then in 2017, uh, you know, I sort of answered an invitation to join Evangelicals for Social Action, now Christians for Social Action. And I had, I had read Ron Sider's book, Rich Christian in the Age of Hunger, in college, and I appreciated the spaciousness of what it could mean to sort of think about how can we faithfully live our discipleship in the public sphere? What does Christian faithfulness look like in a more fuller sense? Um, what does a more just society look like? And, you know, does our faith make a difference um, in this world uh, beyond our own personal redemption? Um, so I think I just really appreciated uh, both the heritage of CSA as well as um, the spaciousness, because, you know, there are a lot of places for Christians to engage um, these days. So it's, it's sort of an exciting time. Well, not to use a hackneyed phrase, but um, as you tell that story, it, what comes to mind is, you know, of course, what we all rely on too easily, but uh, it's the whole story of coming to the kingdom for such a time as this. I think you've arrived at precisely the right moment when the church needs you, when the world needs you. And I know uh, you're probably blushing as I say that because you're a humble person. <laughs> I know that about That's you. That's very kind of you. <laughs> but at the same time, and it should it should cause all of us to blush that, that God or anyone else would ever need us. But mm. the fact is, there is a need for certain voices at this time. And I think you're positioned perfectly for that. And especially from your perch uh, at CSA, which, if you don't mind, um, now that we know you uh, a little better, thank you for that narration. Uh, in, in my end of the evangelical galaxy, we like to say, gee, you just gave me Holy Ghost goosebumps. I mean, <laughs> telling that story, that beautiful pilgrimage of yours. And, and, and I'm going to interrupt myself for a moment here, which I have a propensity for doing, but... If I can go back to uh, your your mention of your childhood church was a Japanese American church. That's right. 
That's right. Wow. Yeah. Pardon me, but that's not a descriptor you hear very often. Was it an evangelical congregation? Oh, absolutely. Through and through. Um, I mean, the church has a fascinating story, actually. So uh, what's unusual is you don't think of Chicago as kind of a Japanese hotbed. No, um, no, I don't. Right? Hawaii, California, north Mm -hmm. and south. Southern California, um, but uh, the so why are there Japanese in Chicago? Um, it's because of the mass incarceration of Japanese Americans uh, during World War II, uh, and so um, you know they started churches. I love this. They started churches and they started baseball, which are kind of two of the things I kind of love. <laughs> uh, but that's what got folks through the camps. Um, some, some would argue there's a similarity there. <laughs> And, um, you know, so they had these uh, Christian faith communities, Hmm. and um, some of the folks were not allowed to return to the West, so they went to Chicago. And so that's sort of the genesis of my church. You know, in my church are folks from the 442nd, which is the all-Japanese regiment in the army that was sent to some of the bloodiest corners of of Europe, Hmm. Um, you know, folks who, you know, weren't allowed to live in liberty, but were allowed to die for the country and, and such. Um, so I think, you know, it was a history that no one in my church ever talked about because that was sort of, um, there was a lot of shame uh, in it and, and a lot of, um, I mean, it was, a, it was pretty traumatic. Um, but I would say that um, actually it is the Christian witnesses lack of protest to the treatment of my family members um, that really feel were Christians like, who, who right? were Bible believing, yeah. they were Bible believing, born Christian. again, that's evangelical right. Christians that's who right. were interned. That's right. Mm-hmm. In concentration camps by our federal government. That's right. Mm-hmm. For no other reason than their ethnicity and uh, national, you know, what distant national connections. That's right. That's right. Yeah. And and. I didn't expect to explore this with you, but do you mind if I do a little sure, bit more? Sure, absolutely, absolutely. Because what you're saying now is so critical in this. Mm-hmm. What did the other, the the dominant uh, majority white evangelical church do about that? That our brothers and sisters in Christ were in concentration camps ordered by our own federal government was there any protest? No, not so none, no organized protest that I'm aware of. There were occasional instances of kindnesses of neighbors who took over farms or, you know, held valuables. Um, and then there was also the predatory practices of a lot of neighbors who bought family heirlooms at rock bottom prices. I, I, I always feel a twinge when I see... Uh, Japanese antiques of a certain era in a non-Japanese home, because I just wonder about the provenance of those. Um, Japanese Americans were sent over to the um, the the horse races. So if you go up and down Northern California, uh, up California, the 101 freeway, uh, you'll see um, the Santa Ana race cor- uh, ho- 
racetrack. There's another racetrack by San Mateo. And every time I drive by those, I remember that that's where people were processed. They lived in in the animal stalls there until the camps were built and people were shipped then out to Arkansas and um, all these different places around uh, uh, the United States. And as far as I can tell, there was no Christian protester uprising um, in in, in essence. I mean, it was wartime too. but from what I understand, sure. there, there was very little dispute. I mean, I have an article written by Eleanor Roosevelt, who I'm usually a super huge fan of, justifying this practice. And on the cover of that article in Collier's Magazine is a picture of my grandfather's family. It's oh my, my grandfather in an American um, Army uh, uniform. And his parents are sitting in front of them. They're all sitting in the camps and his two brothers. And, uh, you know, my grandfather served in the army, the U.S. Army, and just as my great-grandparents were being forcibly deported back to Japan. Um, And that was the cover picture of uh, Eleanor Roosevelt's story, uh, Defending the Practice. So, um, but that's the the place where my faith was born out of, you know, Mm. this this tension of these in-between and these two, um, but yeah. Uh, so, so that's part of what animates my work of justice is that, um, you know, all time is present to God. And so when I'm out there advocating for children who are being separated from their parents at the border, I'm advocating for the children, but I'm also sort of standing witness uh, for my own ancestors. Of There was no Christian witness who stood up and said this was wrong. And so by participating in the things I do now, I don't want that to be true for, you know, the children who are separated when they look back 70 years later and say, where, where were folks? I want them to say, yes, Christians were there testifying, you know, that this was wrong in God's eyes. This brings to mind uh, an experience we probably share, but certainly a lot of our, the folks who are listening in will and that's, you know, when you take a study tour of Bonhoeffer's life in Europe, generally that includes a visit to the camps, the Nazi mm-hmm. camps. Yeah. yeah. And you'll always hear a German Christian say something like, you know, we're asked all the time, why didn't we say anything? Mm-hmm. Why didn't we protest? Mm-hmm. And without trying to justify, uh, their silence they'll they'll at least try to explain it to you take you back in time mm. to what was happening mm-hmm. uh, it, it, the war culture fear um what was being fostered at mm-hmm. the top of government mm-hmm. well there seem to be some similarities here yeah and while most people will you know object vociferously if you make any comparisons at all between the United States and Nazi Germany, mm-hmm. the Third Reich, it, mm-hmm. it's, it's considered the, the you know, greatest offense. Mm-hmm. There are some haunting similarities between what you just narrated mm. and what I heard, mm. uh, what I have heard in my visits to German Christians and, mm-hmm. and how they struggle mm-hmm. with the silence of their uh, former generations during that period. So, but I, I don't want to 
rain on this because you just introduced the, <laughs> the sunshine and the sunshine <laughs> is your mission emerges out of that pain, out of that suffering, out of that shameful period in American history and what it did to your family and our brothers and sisters in Christ of Japanese heritage. But out of that comes this mission of yours, which propels you to what was evangelicals for social action when That's you right. took your uh -huh. and has recently become Christians for social action. Um, and I'm curious about that because I know you just enough. I, I, I wish to know you better, but I know you just enough to know that your concept of Christian is expansive, not mm -hmm. narrow. Mm -hmm. Does that have something to do with the renaming of the organization you lead? Yeah. Absolutely. I mean, absolutely. Um, the, the funny thing is, um, as I've talked to folks who've uh, been around ESA uh, in various leadership positions, like uh, Joanne Lyon at the Wesleyan Church, you know, she says, oh, we've been talking about changing ESA's name for 30 years, hmm. um, which was both uh, encouraging and disheartening. <laughs> it's like it's a round and around conversation, um, you know, and um, and sort of grappling, I think, with with the name, um, but I think one well, of the it took things... us it, it took us four hundred years to get a Bible, so <laughs> you know, three hundred eighty years to get a Bible. True, whatever. true. That depends on how you count it. But, true. You know, um, Thirty years to get a new name. <laughs> uh, but one of the things that, um, as we really uh, sort of entered into a discernment process around the name in earnest about three years ago. Um, you know, uh, one of the things that we did do is we we just talked with lots of folks um, and uh, and we really tried to listen and um, and you were one of the folks who kind of fed into that process and uh, helping mm. me understand some of the Christian landscape um, and uh, really the name uh, change became one of hospitality um, we've just noticed a real shift among our participants um, many of whom identify as evangelical, but there were others who were evangelical adjacent or ex-evangelical. And um, and then as, as we continued to press in and talk with more communities of color, uh, understanding some of their experience of uh, the evangelical label and, and what that meant in their communities and, and some of these sort of things, um, that uh, it, it was quite an education. And so it really became this act of hospitality um, that we wanted to reflect the broader audience that we were engaging um, with the recognition that um, we have a, a little bit of a Catholic contingent um, and a little bit of a mainline um, Protestant contingent. Um, but really our accent, Mark, still is in that evangelical, evangelical adjacent, um, ex-evangelical kind of a space. And, and can we talk a little bit more about... Uh... The, the identifier, the moniker of evangelical. Um, I'm always careful to point out that our namesake here at the Dietrich Bonhoeffer Institute, Dietrich himself was a minister in the Evangelische Kirche. Mm -hmm. um, and, and yet, uh, Evangelische in German and in German uh, 
in the German church means something distinctly different than evangelical here in the United States, at least of late. Yes. Yeah. And, and it begs the question, the change of name in your organization begs the question, has evangelical as a moniker for Christians been ruined by the politics, by the politicization of it in these days? How do you see that? I mean, some of my colleagues say, yes, we have to abandon it. We had David Gushy on recently. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. He has left it behind mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, and consciously uh, mm-hmm. and, and uh, you know, at least offering a, a, a theological justification for that. Mm-hmm. How do you see it? it, it yeah. Is evangelical ruined as a moniker for Christians? Yeah, I think it's a great question. I think it also depends a little bit on where you sit politically, too. Um, I want to um, jump onto the point that you made about how it is quite different in Germany. And I would say one of the key elements in our process was trying to engage leaders in the global church to understand what what are the implications. A little bit trying to suss out what is American and what is universally Christian. Um, And uh, so that was actually a a significant part of our conversation. You know, what I would say is um, uh, from my imperfect understanding um, that under the umbrella or the playing field of evangelicalism in the United States, um, that in the last uh, uh, 20 years or so um, has uh, entered into an influx of fundamentalists um, who, who used to uh, distinguish themselves from the evangelical label. And so... Um, yes, and emphatically with, so. Right. Um, and, and was that around like, was that around the 80s or so? I think you would know better than I would about that. Uh, just just be, I would, I would locate it 60s uh, into okay. the early 70s, and then Jerry Falwell Sr. Yes. changed that uh, over a period of time from early 70s to early 80s. Yes. Okay. So that's that's the time period I'm sort of, you know, so, so there's been a, a shift of to, I will maybe say, social conservatism um, with the influx of the uh, fundamentalists coming under this um, evangelical label that you know, they, you know, for a while really strive to um, distinguish uh, themselves from. And so I think that that has really pulled a shift that um, has made evangelical in the common, in, in the colloquial way that it's used, mean something different than to folks who are maybe studies of church history and theology and um, understand sort of what is the spirit of the evangel. Um, So in our conversations, as I've talked to different leaders and listened to different communities and groups, I really found that um, different organizations were wrestling with with this question um, in the last, I'd say, three or four years, more so in earnest than I had seen before. Um, And and people would make a distinction between um, are they using evangelical as an adjective or are they using evangelical as a noun hmm. or um, a commitment to the evangel um, and whether or not that meant that their label was evangelical. You know, these sort of distinctions. Um, but I think for us, 
in our organization, I think it really became a spiritual discernment process um, because we realized we could stay under the umbrella of evangelical and that would be the one conversation we would have for the rest of our organization. Mm. It would be, you know, trying to be a, let's call it a different kind of evangelical or stirring the imagination of what evangelical could mean, you know, and, and really kind of taking that on. Um, but, you know, we have good friends, Walter Kim over at the National Association of Evangelicals and, and other places who are, 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 you know, carrying that banner and doing so faithfully and well. And um, we are grateful that they do. But we just realized there's too many things happening for the vulnerable and the marginalized. Uh, there are too many Christians who still think of their faith in really narrow terms. Um, and what discipleship looks like in the public square, they sort of reduced it to a private faith, that we felt like there were other conversations that we really wanted to push forward. And so that was ultimately, ultimately was a response to a sense of invitation we had from God to sort of say, yes, we, we, will, we will jump into those conversations. Um, so that was kind of how we sort of navigated that. But I, I do think, boy, um, after the 2016 election, I think in 2017, I think it was a part of three or four different listening and wrestling sessions as people kind of were trying to understand, you know, what is politics, what is the mirror of politics reflecting back to our church and what our church believes and, and some of that sort of thing. Hmm. Well, I don't know whether I should apologize for it or be <laughs> happy that I proved your point because here we go right to the discussion of what is an evangelical and what constitutes evangelicalism when in fact you have a much larger mission than defining evangelicalism. In fact, that isn't part of your mission at all and uh, glad that that is, in fact, the case because CSA, as it's now known, has a much broader mission. Can you tell us about it? How would you define the mission of Christians for Social Action? Um, yeah, absolutely. And, and Rob, I mean, to your point, um, for me personally and as a leader um, and what we are embodying as CSA, we are trying to continue to provoke questions and conversations. You know, I, I like showing up as an evangelical and folks kind of being like, you don't look like what we thought you would look like. And you don't, you're not saying the things we thought you were going to say. Um, so all, all that's fair game. <laughs> but um, Christians for Social Action is a, a group of scholar activists um, and we love to stir the imagination of what does a more full um, Christian discipleship look like, uh, both personally as well as in the public square, as well as um, we're kind of agitating for a more just society. Um, so I'd say some of the distinctives are, um, you know, we like the, the justice movement can be a little bit thin on its theological reflection, and we kind of like hanging in that meaty reflection and sort of asking um questions of Christian ethics and and how does that inform both how we show up, but also what, what we um, commit to. And then we're also um, pretty passionate about um, 
I think in the on the activism side that there can sometimes be a, a neglect of uh, the spiritual or the spiritual formation. So it, it's very much like um, working on a personal level as well as a systemic level. Uh, you know, education that leads to action and giving people meaningful action in order uh, to help them educate their faith. Um, so uh, that's kind of how we're trying to show up. It all sounds so terribly Bonhoeffrian. <laughs> so, uh, in... It's why we get along so well, I think, huh? <laughs> yeah, yeah, we're in good company. And it does make me think, for example, you know, I like to describe Bonhoeffer as an activist. He mm -hmm. was fully engaged. Yeah. He was not an ivory tower yes. uh, intellectual. Uh, he was an academic of sorts, but he quickly shifted uh, to full engagement. We all know his story. And, uh, and yet at the same time, he was very careful to maintain the spiritual disciplines. Yeah. Life Together tells us that, his yes. whole uh, approach at Finkenwalde and, and everywhere else was to maintain the spiritual exercises necessary to keep you spiritually anchored because as you suggest, the temptation is to either go all heavenly, the otherworldliness uh, mm -hmm. that he decried, or uh, to go utterly vulgar and pagan and earthly mm -hmm. and forget that necessary connection with the spirit, with the soul, with God. So it seems like... Um, boy, you know, we could do a lot together here. And no doubt, a lot of folks who are listening in right now are already thinking that. They're saying, wow, this sounds like an organization for me. How do people relate to CSA? Yeah, well, we have um, a website where we have a, a collection of resources that help people um, connect their faith to tangible action, um, stirs theological reflection. So that's on our website at christiansforsocialaction.org. Um, but we also run some programs through our Racial Justice Institute, as well as our Oriented to Love program. Um, Racial Justice Institute is really working on um, nonviolent responses uh, to the current moment, but also we've been involved in the racial justice conversation since our founding in 1978. So it's um, I think part of what we bring to the conversation is some experience working with divestment strategies in South Africa and, uh, and, and, and working to fight apartheid. That sort of informs the sort of historical and long-term engagement with racial injustice, helps inform kind of how we're responding to the current moment in the United States and, and what is happening now. Um, what, so there's webinars and, and different uh, resources and training there. And then the other program we're quite known for is called Oriented to Love, which is um, a 12-week program uh, curated around 12 people of different um, theological convictions around the LGBTQ Christian's role in the church, um, curated across different uh, people's experiences, uh, gay, straight, uh, bisexual, et cetera, um, for kind of maximal difference. And, and, they, and these folks journey together in kind of an empathetic uh, journey, learning to ask better questions of each other. Um, and it's just a phenomenal program um, that's really striving to be, I think, a picture of um, 
Christian community that has a unity that's deeper than agreement, uh, a Christian community that um, follows Jesus well and comes to different conclusions. And yet, how is it that we can still continue uh, to be part of uh, the body of the larger body of Christ? I did want to circle back your comments about, you know, Bonhoeffer and um, his, his, you know, his writings about community and his faith practices. I think they're so salty. They're so um, seasoned because of that in, uh, engagement that he has, right? This, the theological deep thinking, the academic side and reflection, the depth that's there was seasoned because these things had to, were put into action and lived out in his life. And I feel like it's that that interchange and then that reflection and how what's happening on the ground feeds into his academic reflections and his deep spiritual writing. You know, that that is the place that I just think it's part of what makes his work so timeless, because the work that he did was so grounded in the true tensions that come when you're trying to live your faith out um, in a complicated world and in a confusing world. Um, so anyways, I, I do think that there's, I, I, that's one of the things I really love about Bonhoeffer is um, he had a foot in both places and I think was the richer for it, you know, versus um, halfway in either. And I think we see that particularly not so much in discipleship or as some know it, cost of discipleship, mm -hmm. which is very tidy. Mm -hmm. You know, it's a very tidy uh, presentation, but mm -hmm. in letters and papers, mm, because mm -hmm. in the in the jail cell, uh, under the uh, menace mm -hmm. of you know the the imminent threat to his life and mm -hmm. and hearing and knowing of the murder and suffering and dying going on all around him, mm -hmm. uh, and then. Of course, the bombings from mm -hmm. the sky, mm -hmm. uh, which, by the way, while we're trading little personal stories, um, I'm actually named for an uncle, Captain Robert L. Shank, who flew B-17s over Europe. Is that right? And I'm often struck with the thought that some of the bombs raining down on dear Bonhoeffer and his fellow prisoners could have been bombs released by my wow. uncle up in the yes. sky. Wow. And that's very jarring for me when yes, I think about yes, that. But yes. all of that menace and threat, and yes. here he is with his his own personal discipleship, his faith, coming uh -huh. out uh, his relationship with the Lord and his love of neighbor inside the cells. Yes, I, I often tell uh, would-be readers. You have to read him in his context, uh, uh -huh. just as listening to your story in uh -huh. its context of your family's suffering and history. Uh, it, it just it it makes what you say about faith, about theology, about living our witness of the gospel so much more tangible and meaningful and all the conflicts uh, that you explore at CSA. Um, you know, when you just introduced uh, the fact that CSA deals with the question of L LGBTQIA and other Christians, mm -hmm. I heard 
two ends of our listening spectrum, we have folks who would identify probably as fundamentalists, certainly as evangelicals. And then we have folks in our uh, TDBI family who would identify as progressive Christians. Mm -hmm. So right at that moment, I heard a gasp <laughs> and I heard a sigh of relief <laughs> simultaneously uh, through the walls here of my home studio. And, uh, and yet I'm quick to remind my fellow evangelicals, and you know me well enough, Nikki, just to know that I kept company, yes. mostly on the fundamentalist end of mm -hmm. the evangelical universe for mm -hmm. three decades. Mm -hmm. And in that place, there's an awful lot of voices who would say there's no such thing as a Christian. Mm -hmm. That's an oxymoron. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Uh, and yet I remind them, oh no, you're wrong, I met them. Mm -hmm. In fact, in my years in traveling in fundamentalist and ultra-conservative churches, I met pastors who were mm -hmm. gay. Mm -hmm. They okay. told me that quietly in a mm -hmm. whisper, mm -hmm. in a voice of shame. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. But they were same-sex attracted, and some mm -hmm. of them were in relationships, mm -hmm. uh, same-sex relationships. They were there. We just kept them invisible. Yeah. And, and to me, that's part of the ethical challenge and and you are meeting that i know that because i read you i i read what csa publishes and it's always very edifying to me and i would encourage any of our listening family to do that check out christians for social action and i'm sorry the moniker of of the uh, section dealing with lgbtq oh that's called that program is called oriented to love i'm sorry i forgot that oriented to love and do you find that on the website yeah absolutely please visit there because nothing uh, well nothing come on that's uh irresponsible statement uh few things are as relevant <laughs> to this moment as that question because we now know there are christians who are gay and we must answer this question. In fact, uh, those who are familiar with uh, the Bonhoeffer biography by Charles Marsh, Strange Glory, know that Marsh hints around that Dietrich Bonhoeffer may have experienced at least same-sex attraction, if not been a closeted gay man. We, it's a question on the table. Uh, we will never be able to fully answer that. Uh, but these are very relevant questions in this moment of time. And it seems like what was ESA and now is CSA has been very good at that. Uh, you're not addressing questions of the past only, but of the present, the now, and of the future. And that's particularly helpful to Christians, to the church, I think, to the general society and the world uh, today. So if somebody were, if we were all sitting at a table, Nikki, talking like this, uh, and, and somebody said, well, come, I, you know, how can I get involved with you guys? What, how would you advise someone who says, wow, CSA sounds like something for me? How would yeah. you, what would they do? Absolutely. One of the things I'd say is uh, go onto the website at christiansforsocialaction.org. And um, on there, uh, sign up for our mailing list, which is called the epistle. And uh, as you'll I get have done, as yeah. I have done. I am in your database, <laughs> and um, and you'll get uh, on a on a regular basis about um, two or three times a month 
um, a collection of the articles, a curated collection of the articles um, on the art, uh, uh, on the website, as well as uh, various actions that uh, different partners have that we're always looking for kind of timely initiatives or actions that help people put their Christian faith into tangible and meaningful action, um, as well as uh, opportunities with our programs or webinars. So that's a great place to just have a, a one-stop uh, spot and get um, connected to Christians for Social Action. If I could go back to one of the things that you were saying just about kind of the LGBTQ Christians. Um, Please do. One of the, one of the significant um, groups of people that we have attending on OTL weekend, and they're always confidential. Um, besides having, uh, we have a lot of pastors who are coming and trying to, um, trying to suss out for themselves uh, and, and navigate their theological convictions um, and, and kind of what the temperature is in their community. And, and they need a safe place to sort of wrestle and, and maybe ask questions that might be considered offensive or, 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 or to be just tremendously honest. So that's one group. But the other group is we have a lot of people who are parents um, of children who have since come out and their theology, uh, the parents are really wrestling with this is, these are my theological convictions and I love my child. And, and how, how do I proceed from here? And I would say that's actually a pretty regular uh, spot for our folks. People do not change their minds coming out of Oriented to Love, but they are more kind and they're more compassionate. And I think they understand more the implications, but also how to be hospitable in ways that are consistent to their convictions as well. So to your point of there being a lot of closeted pastors, I think the other thing we're seeing a tremendous um, rise of is uh, pastors of, a th of conservative convictions, um, finding out that in their extended family, um, uh, you know, th there's a lot more happening than they may have assumed before. Indeed. And in fact, when I was traveling for 35 years as an itinerant preacher uh, in evangelical churches, uh, I couldn't count the numbers of pastors who, once they discovered I was a safe person to discuss certain things with, mm -hmm. either talked about themselves, their family members, or more often would say, look, I have gay people in my church. Yeah. And I don't know how to minister to them given right. the charged atmosphere yeah. that we have. So these are very real, very relevant, and enormously consequential questions for theology, Christian ethics, but most importantly, how we love our fellow human beings and how we treat them which has everything to do with the attributes of God. These, there are just enormous implications here. That's right. Yeah, that's right. And much broader uh, brings uh, the question of Christian witness, what yes. we are known as and for and to be. And you're helping us answer that, Nikki, through the work of CSA, through your own personal story, your voice, uh, which is here again. Uh, ooh, it's so overused, but it's yet such a potent story, particularly when you look at 
uh, you know, the, the full story itself, but I believe you are here in the kingdom for such a time as this. Although I do like to remind people uh, that when Mordecai uh, made that statement, he, he qualified it by saying, who knows? Who knows? <laughs> we don't always absolutely know. <laughs> which, which should sort of always be our posture, right? Yes. We should speak with conviction. We should run with passion and then hold it with an open hand and say, you know what? The Holy Spirit does what the Holy Spirit does. Who knows? <laughs> who knows? Who knows? So who knows? But our conversation today could have an enormous impact on one person's life or the lives of many. Uh, it certainly has on mine, Nikki. Thank you for this very rich conversation, for your friendship and collegial partnership. I do think uh, that uh, the Dietrich Bonhoeffer Institute is in very good company with you guys, and I hope reciprocally so. Absolutely. Maybe we can do some stuff together. That would be fun. Future. Absolutely. Uh, in case folks don't know, you did mention Ron Sider's name, but the venerable yes. uh, Ron Sider of uh, 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 Rich Christians in an Age of Hunger and on and on and on and on uh, in his, uh, what, 50-year uh, span of yes. work, uh, was uh, there at the inception of uh, what was then Evangelicals for Social Action, now Christians for Social Action, and uh, Ron has done a lot with us here. So uh, we're, 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 we're all in the family, and <laughs> I invite our family members to explore Christians for Social Action. I think some of you will find uh, not only a resource there, but a place of expression and an important one, so please do go. And what's the particular address of, of the uh, website? Yeah, it's christiansforsocialaction.org. Easy, easy yeah. to remember. Christians Thank you so much, Rob. I, it has been really fun chatting with you. Well, let's do it again, Nikki. Thanks so Absolutely. much.